We start today with the Vancouver Police Department budget frozen yesterday by Vancouver City Council. No new money for the police in Vancouver. They had been seeking a 2% budget increase. How will this impact frontline police services in the city? Let's talk about that right now with my guest, Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Thank you for coming on once again. Hey, thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. Okay, what is your reaction to the city uh, freezing your budget? Yeah, well, we went into the budget with, um, you know, a very good plan and really good support from our police board that I might add. They're very, um, you know, well-educated, thoughtful and critical thinkers. And they were very supportive of the um, approved budget that they approved on November 30th. And we were looking for a 2% uh, increase in our 2020 budget, but that was basically a reasonable budget status quo to keep the lights on and provide the same level of service to the people of Vancouver that we're able to provide in 2020. But you have to increase your budget to provide the same service due to um, fixed costs and other you know, contractual arrangements and other things that you have to pay off in order to keep, uh, keep everything the same as it is in 2020. Okay, what will be impacted here by this decision to freeze the budget? Well, by freezing the budget, the net impact is actually equivalent to a 1.8% decrease in our budget. So we have a shortfall of about $5.7 million. And, you know, the way I think it's easiest to translate it to your listeners is that's the equivalent of us not hiring. Like, nobody's going to get laid off from the police department. But what it means is that in 2021, uh, we won't be able to hire 61 recruits. And that's to make up for attrition as officers retire off the job. After a 30-year career, they'll be leaving, and nobody will be hired to replace them. Okay, when you say it's the, the equivalent of a cut, is that because of this rising demands for police service in the city, so the budget will not keep up to that? Well, if you think about any budget where you've got um, contractual agreements and different commitments, yeah. so for example, if you know people got a 2% pay raise on a $300 million um, payroll, that would be $6 million right there. So just to keep the same number of people um, with, um, you know, insurance going up, um, pay increases, all that sort of thing that are, um, you know, people have earned that are contractual um, to meet those commitments. The budget has to go up just to maintain the status quo of the previous year. Will public safety be compromised because of this? Well, I, I just find it a little bit shocking in a year where we've got a pandemic and an opioid crisis and the public survey indicating people are concerned about these issues and crime patterns in our city with you know violent crime up in 16 of 24 neighborhoods, hate crime up, and we've got residents, as you know, and, and businesses in areas like Yale Town, Strathcona, Chinatown, Granville Entertainment District, who are in a tough spot right now, and they need the police. And now we're going to be in a situation where, you know, getting into 2021, ultimately we'll have 61 fewer officers than we have right now. Okay, so 61 fewer officers than you have now, but you said that you're not going to lay off any officers, though. We're not laying off. Right? So this will be, we have normal retirements that will happen throughout a year, and we would normally lose, you know, an average, let's say, 50 people a year due to retirements. So this, and we expect 2021 will be a big retirement year just due to demographics. And those will be positions that won't be replaced as people right. go out the door. Right. There's no new people coming in the door. Okay, let me play this clip for you, Chief Palmer. This is uh, Vancouver City Councilor Christine Boyle, who actually moved the motion at City Council to freeze the Vancouver Police budget. And here she is uh, talking about where the VPD could cut spending. The Vancouver School Board is looking at reconsidering the program of having police liaisons in schools. Uh, that decision should come back in the new year. So if they don't continue that program, that would create some police uh, space in the police budget. The, the VPD recently launched a new 
neighborhood response unit. Uh, they have a number of civilian staff as well who aren't frontline police officers in communications and elsewhere. So it's up to the leadership at the police board to operationalize where those cuts come from. Okay, let's start with some of the things, uh, the neighborhood response unit that you recently set up. Could that be shut down? Yeah, so come January, for sure, that'll be shut down. We just won't have the budget wow. to deal with that. So we'll be able to run that for the rest of this month, and then there'll be no more funding for that. As far as, wow. you know, talking about civilian staff, our, we went through, you know, two large reviews over the past 15 years. One as recently as finishing in December of 2017, three years ago, where we've looked at all these things like civilianization and efficiencies, and the outside review showed that we were understaffed. So we don't have extra civilian staff sitting around. They provide so much value to supporting our frontline operations. And, you know, one area that I am concerned about really is the uh, the well-being of our frontline officers who do a very tough job under very challenging circumstances, particularly in this current environment. And I worry about their well-being and their families because they are facing, uh, and you've seen, you know, some of the stuff that we've put out about the amount of calls that are holding at any given time. And, you know, people are running around, running ragged from call to call. So it's tough being a frontline police officer, and I'm concerned about them. What do you say to critics who say the the Vancouver Police Department is already overfunded, that you've received lots of healthy budget increases over many, many years? And then it's time for the police department to tighten its belt, just like every other uh, department of the city. I say two things to that. Number one, um, the percentage that we have of the city budget, 20 to 21%, has been the same for the past three decades. So for 30 years, we've always been the same percentage. And the percentage of the city budget is going up uh, the same, if not higher, in some areas in the police department. So everybody focuses on the police because we're front and center. But that's the trend that we've been on and has not increased uh, percentage-wise over three decades. The other thing I would say is that the unique thing about the Vancouver Fire Department, and I would also mention you know, our friends in the Vancouver Fire Department, is we are the only two city departments that have actually gone through large-scale operational reviews to look at operations, determine the true size of what the police department and the fire department needs to be, yet um, cuts are coming to the police where other city departments have not gone through any such review whatsoever. Okay, we're at a time where there's a lot of scrutiny on police conduct, uh, police training. We see the defund the police movement, and we've seen a lot of activism in our our own city calling for the Vancouver Police Department budget to be cut, if not completely eliminated. Uh, At the same time, the Vancouver City City Council is freezing the Vancouver uh, police budget, we see two Vancouver police officers uh, charged in assault on a, with assault this week on a former UBC football player. W- what can you say to the public to reassure them about their the confidence they may have in Vancouver police chain, uh, training and conduct at this time? Um, well, first off, just you know, to your point about defund the police, I'd just like to point out that I think some people are you know buying into this false argument that you know, the upstream drivers are underfunded because police services are overfunded. We would agree that those upstream services are underfunded and they need more money, but not at the expense of public safety and the police. So we agree that mental health, homelessness, addiction, they need more support, full stop, but not at the expense of public safety. Um, As far as, you know, police, uh, we have more oversight than any other profession, whether it's through our board, the Office of the Police Complaints Commissioner, the Independent Investigations Office, through yourself and the media, through civil liberties, through all these different uh, coroner's inquests. There's not another occupation 
not pilots, not doctors, not engineers that have the same amount of oversight that we do. So there's very good oversight. And just remember that, you know, when we're responding to, you know, 265, 270,000 calls a year for service and over a million contacts with people throughout a year, um, under high-risk situations, there are going to be times when the police are investigated, absolutely. And that's the way it should be for public trust and accountability. But those processes exist. This is not the United States where those processes are not in place. You've made the case here this morning that freezing the budget is effectively a cut to the Vancouver police budget, that police officers who retire next year, and a lot of them are set to do that, will not be replaced. You've talked about shutting down this new neighborhood crime response unit that you just set up. At the end of the day, will this city be less safe as a result of this budget? Well, here's the other thing I just want to mention, Mike, that's really relevant to this conversation, and Council was fully informed of this, is that we have the Surrey Police Service that's underway right now and just building. And about 40% of our VPD officers live out in that Surrey-Langley area. So there is also risks of people potentially patching over and joining the Surrey Police Service. So that will further, um, you know, exacerbate the issue and reduce our ranks. So we're going to be in a situation with not enough funding for retirements, potentially people going over to another police service. So we're going to be watching this closely. We are likely still going to have to do some recruiting going forward just to keep up with Surrey and and that anticipation. But it's going to be definitely a challenging year in 2021. Is the city less safe as a result? Um, Well, let me put it this way. We're going to do our best to keep the city safe. That's my responsibility. We've got great analytics and amazing people in this department. So I'm not going to um, throw out a uh, salacious comment like that. I'm going to tell you we're going to do our best with the brave men and women of the VPD and keep our city safe and, and do the best we can. But it's going to be tough. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Appreciate okay, it. thanks a lot. That is Adam Palmer, the chief of the Vancouver Police Department, reacting to the move yesterday by Vancouver City Council to freeze the police budget in the city of Vancouver. No new money for the police in the city. Uh, he says it's effectively a cut. They will not be able to replace police officers who retire in the new year. He is breaking some news there, saying that that new neighborhood response, neighborhood crime response unit set up recently by the police, that will be shut down as a result of this city council funding decision. During the recent BC election campaign, NDP leader John Horgan promised BC families $1,000 to help them through the COVID-19 pandemic. They call it the BC Recovery Benefit. 1,000 smackers per family. If you're an individual... Maybe you live alone. Don't worry, you'll get paid too. $500 available for an individual. The cherry on top here, you get the money direct deposited to your bank account. No muss, no fuss. It's cash in your claw, free money from the NDP. Now, a couple of things to keep in mind here. First of all, Horgan promised you would get this money before Christmas. Well, Christmas is coming. And I know what you're thinking. Show me the money. Where's the money? Well, the government announced yesterday you will be able to apply for the money starting on December 18th. Now, if you're eligible to get this cash, I encourage you to do it. You'd be foolish otherwise. Government's giving you free money. Take the money. That's what I'm, that's what I would advise you to do. But let's not kid ourselves here, okay? This is straight up vote buying. That's what this was. 
That's what this was during this election campaign. They're buying your vote. That's what it was all about. It worked, too. They got a lot of votes. Now they've got to pay the money out. Here's the thing, though. If you want proof that this thing was just a straight-up vote-buying plan, I think that was revealed for everybody to see yesterday. Because when you take a look at the details of this plan, how they're going to distribute this money, check this out. Now, the money will be distributed on a means-tested basis. So if you're a rich person, you don't get the money if you're super rich. Why would you give you a thousand bucks if you're rich? If you're a rich family, you don't get it. So they means test it. So if you're high income, you don't get the money. If you're middle income, maybe you get a little less money. If you're low income, you get the whole thousand bucks per family. But here's what they said yesterday. They are going to means test this pandemic relief program based on your income earned in 2019 before the pandemic hit. Does this make any sense at all? This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You are going to have a pandemic relief plan based on your income before the pandemic hit. Now just think about how dumb this is. Let's say you were got you were in a good job in 2019. Maybe you maybe you uh, or maybe you you could not qualify for this money if you lost your job in 2020. Let's say you were wiped out in 2020. You lost your job because of COVID. Now you don't qualify because they're going to base it on your 2019 income. What if you got a big raise in 2020? Not everybody lost their job. Maybe you got a big raise. Maybe your income went up. (laughs) You still get the money, even if you don't need it. I think that shows this was straight up vote buying let's talk about this now with my guest mike bernier bc liberal finance critic he's the mla for peace river south mike thanks for coming on hey it's my pleasure mike thanks for having me okay i'm saying like if you if you just if you qualify for the money take the money absolutely but at the bottom line it was vote buying what do you think well absolutely agree uh, if you look at during the election uh, john horgan even came out and said that he had to put something forward on the table for people after the bc liberals announced in their platform they would look at eliminating PST to try to help everyone uh, for a full year. And then Horgan comes out with this $1,000. Originally, he said $1,000 per person. Then it changed wow. to 1000 per family and 500 per wow. person. And now, as you're saying, um, the way they are going to roll out this program is absolutely asinine, in my opinion, when you look at the fact that it's based on 2019 income, as you said. So you, you gave exactly the right examples of how this is not going to work for people who truly need it right now it's all about people who have been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic that's what this was supposed to be about that's what the sales pitch was uh, when this was rolled out to vote for them you're eligible to receive the full thousand dollars if you have a family income under one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars which a year which is not that bad of a family income if you earn up to a hundred and seventy five thousand dollars then you start to get a reduced amount and if you're over that amount you don't get anything i thought it was bizarre that if as you get closer to a hundred and seventy five thousand bucks like if you if you're in a hundred and seventy four thousand as a family they'll give you ten dollars yeah ten ten dollars so somebody who makes uh, the family $174,000 a year can go through the process of applying online to get 10 bucks. From to the get $10 direct deposited to your bank account. Does this make any sense at all? 
Not at all. But, you know, at the end of the day, Mike, we completely support the fact that there are a lot of people right now that are hurting, a lot of people that need help, uh, a lot of people that are looking for a plan and support from government. So we are in favor of looking at opportunities to help people. But that's to help people who genuinely need it right now because of COVID-19 is what this was supposed to be about. Okay, and there are absolutely probably going to be some cases here, I bet you, that people who are genuinely in need, genuinely hurting because of this pandemic will not qualify for this pandemic relief because they're basing it on last year's income. I mean, if you were working in 2019 and you had a good job and then you lost everything in 2020, you potentially don't qualify for this money. Absolutely. And that's that's absolutely correct. And I've already heard from so many people around the province, uh, some mill workers, for instance, that uh, they were curtailed. Uh, They worked last year in the oil and gas sector maybe as well. So they might have made as an individual over the 62500 They might have made $75,000 last year, but got laid off in February 1st or April 1st to pick a date because of COVID-19. They are broke. They are trying to pay their mortgage. They're trying to put food on the table for their families that hopefully buy something at Christmas time but they won't qualify for these funds because of the rules that the NDP have put in. Right, and of course, the the NDP did not disclose these rules or describe these rules during the election campaign, or did they? I mean, did they say during the election campaign it would be based on your 2019 income? No, not at all. In fact, nobody knew any of this until yesterday uh, when the minister stood up and said, actually, here's our plan on how it's going to roll out. Uh, we wanted you to have it by Christmas. It's now cutting it pretty tight. It's going to spend a week or two in the legislature uh, before it's even approved. Um, and we know it'll get approved because the NDP have a majority government. Uh, but they've also right. said that there's a good chance you might not have it by Christmas right now. But, Mike, you gotta you got to think about this. There's people still waiting for the promised rent supports that they haven't got. The uh, frontline workers' pandemic pay that they haven't got. Things that were actually promised before the election. And John Horgan said, don't worry, we've called this snap election, but it's not going to slow anything down or change anything. But people are still waiting well, uh, for them. It was promised. Well, there's stuff they promised in the election before that. You know, yeah, where, where's your $400? Where's the, yeah, where's the renter's rebate? 400 bucks. He, pr- he promised that many years ago. It still hasn't shown up. Let me play this for you. This uh, My guest is Mike Bernier. He's the liberal finance critic. Uh, this is Selena Robinson here. She's the finance minister, of course, and she's speaking yesterday on the Linda Steele show. And Linda asked her, why did you base this on 2019 income before the pandemic hit in order to give people a pandemic benefit? And here's what she said. Right now, if we had to use the 2020 return, then we wouldn't be able to do this until next year when people actually have their returns done. People don't have their returns done for 2020. So it would be impossible for us to, to sort that out. But what we did do, Linda, was we made sure that we had a very high ceiling so that we would capture those people who really do need it most. And, and that's why you see such a high ceiling uh, to capture middle income British Columbians who may have been very, very severely impacted by 2020, recognizing that we are using the 2019 numbers. Okay. She says people haven't filed their 2020 income mm-hmm. tax returns, obviously, yet, so they can't really quantify it on your current income. Is that adequate explanation for what they're doing here? Well, with all due respect to the minister, it's a complete cop-out. Um, this is all about people who are impacted because of COVID-19. Of course, last year, 
We didn't even know about COVID-19 in 2019 when people were working and trying to find jobs. Look at all the other programs that have rolled out, uh, not necessarily always successfully, but you look at the CERB payments and other programs that have rolled out to genuinely help people impacted because of COVID-19. There were programs that were able to be used to get money out the door to help people that were impacted. That, to use the 2020 excuse, uh, is a cop-out. There could have easily been other parameters put in, uh, even if it had to be an application process. Okay, like what, though? What would be a better way to do this, a more effective way to do it, so you wouldn't have people like the examples that you cited, like a mill worker who had a decent income last year but then got laid off and he needs help, and now now that worker doesn't qualify for this money, which, which I think is ridiculous. What would have been a better way to do it? I mean, you just heard her describe some of the challenges in doing this. How would you have done it? Well, the challenges she's trying to face is because they're looking at a way of trying to come up with a last-minute program that they had no plan for. Look, it's all about getting the money out and helping people. You know, if we have to look at a program where people apply and they actually have to fill out and just say, yes, I lost my job. Don't even talk about 2019. How were you impacted this year in 2020 and why do you need the supports? We could have always done something like that on a trust-based, knowing that once people file in 2020, if they took the money when they shouldn't have, they might have to pay it back. But at the end of the day, it's how do we get the money out the door now? So you would do like a like a CERB-style program where people would go online, they could apply for the money if they've lost their job, they get the cash quickly, and then what? It would be up to Revenue Canada to sort it out later if you lied? I mean, you know, we've heard stories about how CERB has been abused and it's it's wide open to fraud, but... You're saying, what, a CRA can start it out later? Well, there's always other ways we could look at it, Mike, uh, to try to ensure that we get money into the pockets of people now. I mean, you even look at look at some of the other sectors that are really hurting right now. They're asking for help. Uh, the restaurant industry, the tourism sector, uh, other people who are saying, look, don't give me, this is what I've heard, don't give me the $500, help my boss so I don't lose my job. I want to have hope for next year in 2021. I don't necessarily need the $500 as an election payoff. I want to keep my job next year. So let's make sure we're putting money into the right areas to help people in the long term, uh, not just an election payoff. Thanks for coming on today. No, it's absolutely my pleasure. Take care. Okay, thanks a lot. That is Liberal MLA Mike Bernier. He represents Peace River South in the legislature. He's the Liberal finance critic. On December 6th, it was announced that eight people had tested positive for COVID-19 at a mink farm in the Fraser Valley. Following this, animal rights activist and screen star Pamela Anderson sent a letter to Premier John Oregon urging the province to end the fur farming industry. Have a listen to this report now from Global News. There are about a dozen mink farms in British Columbia. At one location, there's been an outbreak involving eight workers. And there's a reason to worry. Some mink will test positive, but really show no symptoms at all and seem fine. Uh, Others will be sick and some will die. And so, of course, it's a concern to the farmers to try to protect their herds. The mink live in confined spaces, densely packed together, and can pass the virus onto each other quickly. But when the disease goes beyond that... It's a bigger breeding ground. Going forth and back between animals and humans is uh, another opportunity for the virus to mutate at a higher rate than if it were to stay in one species only. Take a look at what happened in Denmark, the largest exporter of mink. 
The industry was forced to cull all 17 million of its animals. After 12 people were infected by a mutated strain of the virus, it had passed from humans to the mink and then back to people. If there was a new strain that originated somewhere else, then the world would be you know, potentially exposed to a new virus. In Canada, there are 60 mink farms stretching from Newfoundland and Labrador to British Columbia. The business, worth about $400 million annually, exports about a million mink, mostly to China and Russia, to be made into apparel. The industry doesn't believe a cull is necessary in Canada. You don't have that concentration and the risk of contagion and passing from one farm to another is much, much reduced. The owner of the BC farm is in isolation, as are the workers. The health ministry is investigating to see what course of action needs to be taken next. Robin Gill, Global News, Vancouver. Okay, really appreciate that report from Robin Gill. Really interesting story there and a lot to talk about here. As we mentioned off the top, the celebrity animal rights activist Pamela Anderson, very well known around the world, calling on the B.C. government to stop this uh, industry and shut down fur the fur farming industry. Let's t- uh, speak about this now with Camille Labchuk. She's an animal rights lawyer. She's executive director of Animal Justice. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Camille. Hi, Mike. Good to be here. Thanks a lot for coming on once again. What jumps out at you about this story with the COVID outbreak at a mink farm? Well, unfortunately, Mike, we've seen this coming from a mile away. We, we've seen in countless European countries that mink farms have been this, uh, the, the, the location of massive COVID outbreaks and that uh, these viruses can actually mutate inside the minks and come back to humans and potentially undermine the effectiveness of the vaccine that was just approved today. So it's very troubling. Um, the mink industry is always had issues with animal cruelty. I think anyone who's seen images from inside a fur farm gets that. And when you've got polls showing now that 81% of Canadians are opposed to killing animals for fur, I think the solution is obvious. We just need to shut these farms down. It's not just Pamela Anderson who's opposed to mink farms. It's most of us. Okay. How big is this industry in Canada? I think most people don't really know much about it. How big is it? Well, it's shrinking. Uh, you know, the, 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 the numbers in your report that were just mentioned were about 60 mink farms left, and that's a significant decline from hundreds that were present years ago. And the reason for that, Mike, is that mink pelt prices have fallen drastically because people's attitudes towards fur are shifting. People don't want to wear fur anymore. Uh, that's why you've seen most of the major popular fashion labels ditch fur from their lines. We've seen all kinds of retail outlets like Nordstrom say that they're not going to offer fur products for sale anymore. Uh, this is an industry that's just on the decline. And, and the reason that it's on the decline is because people's attitudes have changed. Um, governments are still propping up the fur industry, giving you know hundreds of millions of dollars to, to the fur farmers uh, because there's really not markets for these products anymore. So we think it would be a better thing for the government to use that funding to buy out mink farms, help the mm. farmers transition to something new and leave this cruelty off the table. Okay. Is, are minks the only animals that are farmed for their fur? Minks are the bulk of animals farmed for their fur. Yeah, There's also yeah. a couple of fox farms uh, wow. still active. Huh. You know, Prince Edward Island, where I'm from, used to have many, many fox farms. I believe Quebec may still have one or two, although one of them was charged with animal cruelty a couple of years ago and convicted of that because the conditions were so appalling. So mostly it's mink. Okay, this gets into a really kind of, I don't know, in- interesting kind of personal ethical debate, I guess, about what how people feel about this. Like, I think, I don't know, mink coats don't seem to be very fashionable anymore. But if you want to talk about uh, other sort of animal-derived clothing materials like leather, for example, or, or wool, or, or down feathers in, uh, in down jackets, 
Um, are you opposed to all of those as well? I am, Mike, and, and the reason for that is because no matter how you obtain those materials, they do cause animals to suffer. I mean, leather might be seen as just a byproduct of the meat industry, but it's actually a co-product. It makes the meat industry more profitable, and it enriches those who are killing animals and confining them in troubling conditions. Um, sheep, for instance, you know, that's another situation where people think, well, we're not killing the sheep, we're just shaving the wool off. But undercover footage from sheep farms where the shearing is done shows, you know, sheep with their skin ripped open because of the shears, painful wounds, and, and eventually they go to be slaughtered too. So when you look at all the amazing brands on the market these days that don't use animal products in their outerwear, for instance, or are using non-leather materials for shoes, I think the solution is really obvious and that we're getting technological solutions that are actually um, a lot better for the planet, obviously better for animals, and are actually sturdier too. Like, you know, down coats, it has nothing on a primal loft coat, which I own and has saved my life in the, the cold Ontario winters. That's a material that's used for Arctic exploration because it's so high-tech and warm that it eclipses down in every way. Okay, I think it's a tough issue. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if you'll feel if you'll think any less of me, but like right now I'm wearing a pair of uh, Blundstone sh- suede shoes. Uh, I think I've got I got leather upholstery in the in the vehicle that I drive. I got a down coat at home that I I, I enjoy wearing in the winter. It keeps me ni- keeps me nice and warm and dry. So, and I don't think I'm obviously unique in that. A lot of people would be wearing and buying these these products, but you're saying that you can get ethically sourced alternative. You get you can get artificial alternatives for all of those. Yeah, right? you can. And it's really easy these days, and also really common. I've I've yeah. noticed this trend over the last couple of years, where all these companies are now making animal-free outerwear, and they're advertising it as such because a lot of people are trying to move away from that. So, Mike, I, you know, I wouldn't worry about the products you already have, but I think a lot of people listening are probably in that category of people that are trying to make better choices, trying to avoid products that might hurt animals, and um, also want to buy the, the latest high-tech gear that actually keeps us warmer. Okay, what about the environmental impact of these products? I mean, if you're going to buy a lot of these alternatives, aren't a lot of them, aren't a lot of them sourced from like petrochemicals that are difficult and don't even biodegrade? Well, I think that you, you've got to compare them to what we're what we're seeing in the environmental contamination that results from using animal products. So fur is an example. Uh, you can't just skin an animal and use the fur. The, the fur industry has to um, use very harsh chemicals that can be very environmentally polluting to prevent that fur from rotting because, you know, obviously skin is something that simply decomposes when it's detached from an animal after death. So there's a lot of chemical mm. use there. You've also got to think about the inputs that go into growing those animals. So if you wanted to slaughter a cow to use that cow skin for leather, you've got to keep that cow alive for years. That cow is belching, um, you know, producing greenhouse gases, eating all kinds of food, uh, consuming an immense amount of water and using land. So when you actually compare using animal products to the animal-free alternatives, those alternatives come out ahead on the environment too. Okay, so, you know, high co- like fake leather goods that are produced potentially with chemicals, petrochemicals, you're saying that, that would actually be better for the environment than a real leather coat? Yeah, there are analysis really? analyses that show that that's the case. Um, but, you know, I think another cool thing that's happening, Mike, is we're seeing a trend now of um, companies not using just petrochemical-based alternatives to animal products. We're actually seeing things like mushroom leather, like pineapple leather, 
Uh, you can already <laughs> buy these products in Canadian marketplaces. Oh, come on. Um, I have mush- mushroom leather and pineapple leather? Yes. How long are those going to last? They'll probably fall apart in 10 minutes. No, no, they're, they're super really? good products. I, I'm pretty sure grittinggoat.ca, it's a, you know, it's all animal free store in Calgary online. You can order this stuff across the country. They definitely sell this and I've heard great reviews. Okay. It's so, the okay. So you're saying that what government action is needed. You would like to see government step in, shut these business industries down. Yeah, I, I think right. it's a risk that we can't afford. Like, there's tons of reasons to abandon fur farming. Animal cruelty is just one of them. But I think the fact that these mink farms are now breeding grounds for COVID-19 that could undermine the effectiveness of our light-at-the-end-of-the-tunnel vaccine, to me, that's something that should open up space to have this conversation about whether this industry is one that we want to exist and whether it's one we want to support with taxpayers' dollars. My guest is Camille Labchuk. She's an animal lawyer. She is the executive director of Animal Justice. Let's talk about one of the worst hit industries in British Columbia during the COVID-19 pandemic. These are businesses that have gone bankrupt in many cases. The dreams of entrepreneurs have been shattered here because of COVID-19. I'm talking about the catering industry here, and we've assembled a great panel here to talk about the impacts of the pandemic on this particular sector of our economy. On the line, Deborah Lookamark. She is the former owner of Culinary Capers Catering. It's a a great business she ran for 33 years. Deborah, it's nice to have you on. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Deborah. Judy Reeves is also on the line. She's the owner of Edge Catering. Hi, Judy. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Deb. Hi. Hi, guys. I'm uh, first of all my sympathies and the tough times that you're going through, Deborah. Let me go to you first. And and you and I have met before. I remember meeting you in uh, Beijing, China, many years ago. I was covering the Olympic Games, and and you were had some contracts over there with the Canadian uh, Olympic officials. And I know your company was just doing gangbusters there. Can you uh, can you tell me a little bit about Culinary Capers and and what the impact is of the pandemic has been? Um, it's been, it was staggering, and I've been through, um, you know, SARS and 9-11, and I've catered in, you know, countries where I can't read the signs and can't, uh, you know, speak the language, but uh, this hit us like a hammer over the head, because when SARS, it didn't really go too far, because it was really on the East Coast, and same with 9-11, so they there was a big impact, but probably only about 50% of the business. And um, the impact now is, a, you know, probably 90% of the business because you can't do any events. With those right. other situations, we could do weddings still and we could do bigger parties still. And, uh, you know, that all stopped. So the only thing you could do was... Basically, there wasn't even corporate catering because nobody was ordering the corporate lunches, which we did 20 to 35 or 40 a day. Wow. So it was like nuts. And I knew March 6th when we heard about the dental conference that this was really going to be bad because we'd done a party for them at Rocky Mountain Air Station, which we managed for 1,200 people. And uh, so all the staff were worried, and it took a week to get the news out of of it. But fortunately, that dentist didn't come to our party. (laughs) So, yeah. Uh, I I know it's been so difficult for you. I know you you had grown your company into one of the largest catering companies in Canada. And uh, have you shut your operations down now? Uh, Yeah, it's... um, 
I, uh, as soon as that happened, I started looking at how I could get out of, you know, two big leases, and uh, and I didn't want to wait too long because I knew it was going to take a long time to get this thing figured out, and it was affecting every. Basically, it broke our business model. It was affecting everything we did from drop-off catering to big events to weddings. Everything we did at the venue, which could take 200-plus people, it all canceled. So I started talking to the lawyers and the accountants and trying to figure out how to best get through this. And um, they all said it's the clearest-cut case for bankruptcy they've ever seen. Right, so you you declared bankruptcy? Yeah. Wow, after 33 years. I'm really sorry to hear that, Deborah. Uh, Judy Reeves is the owner of Edge Catering. Judy, what's what's your experience been like? Thanks, Michael. So first of all, I'd like to say that it, it truly was a tragedy uh, what happened to uh, Culinary Capers. And, um, yeah. you know, they will be very, very missed in the catering industry. Uh, certainly uh, an incredible model and set the bar high for all of us. So, um, you know, again, my uh, my thoughts go out to you, uh, Deb, for what happened uh, to your company. Thanks, um, Judy. Terrible. Uh, and um, so just uh, for educating, we've been operating and grown successfully over the last 15 years in the Vancouver community. And no doubt uh, COVID has had detrimental impacts to all of our industry. Uh, it's reduced our operations and revenue to about a tenth of what we were doing prior to COVID. Wow. And, um, you know, like every small business, we've had to uh, figure out how to keep going, how to deal with our business model that, you know, you just can't change on a dime. And also, most importantly, respect the health restrictions and and, um, the mandate by the health officers to try to keep us all safe and get us out of this. So it really is a call to action for support for small business and recognize that the catering industry is very different, even though it is a food service business, it is very different and unique to restaurants and bars. And we have some different uh, circumstances and definitely did cover some of those areas, such as large events and weddings, uh, corporate catering, that with the, you know, the changes that we've all had to deal with with COVID have had very significant impacts in our ability to operate. My sympathies go out to both of you for what you're going through, uh, and Deborah, especially you with your business shutting down after so, such a long time and, and so much success. And I can only imagine what that's that's like for you to put your heart and soul into a business and, and build it up and to just be walloped and shut down like this. Can, can you describe a little bit about what that's been like for you personally? I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm sure you had to lay off staff. I mean... Can you can you describe what it's been like? Well, because we um, took over another caterer's company, we we had to renovate that kitchen. It needed a lot of work, so we bought another caterer in January and we renovated. Uh, we renovated for another half a million. So um, um. <laughs> then they had you know their clients, which we were trying to keep, and their staff, which we were trying to keep, and then it happened, of course, yeah. to their business as well and they had a couple cafes and so I had to lay off about 120 people uh, 60 probably full-time and the other half are part-time or seasonal but um, we ended up with by like 
early April, we had about eight people working just to try and, you know, Survive. get all the accounts up to speed and get all the collections in and do any little events that we could pick up. But then everybody canceled. Uh, the okay. only thing we really did was uh, in April was there was a cargo ship that we were delivering food to the people on the cargo ship because uh, they couldn't leave the ship. They were from different countries. But uh, they left because the, they sh- wanted to ship them out and fly them back. So that canceled with two days' notice. And then we did Easter dinners, which people could get delivered or, or come and pick right. up. And okay. that was it. You okay, know, we, we only have... We only have a minute left, sadly, and we're not, and we're not doing your stories justice here at all in, in the short time frame we have. But in the minute we have left, Judy, what what could, what do you want the public to know? I mean, is there a way that the public can support uh, businesses in your sector and maybe help some some of these companies get through this? Absolutely, and and Mike, I would say it's a significant call to action for the public to support you know small business. Uh, we as small business owners have been you know, significantly impacted. However, working together and supporting each other, supporting each other in our in our community businesses and other small business, it's really, really important that the general public realizes how incredible the support means to us small businesses. And I certainly want to thank your show and your listeners that can make such a difference to our company and other small businesses. Uh, social media is a huge uh, part of getting the message out and, and happily saying that educatoring is going viral with lots of wonderful things that we have to offer in the catering okay. industry and to the greater public in Vancouver. So I, I really hope everyone. I really hope that better days are ahead. Deborah, you've been a, a, a giant in this industry, and if anyone can come back, I, I'm sure it's you. Thank you for coming on and sharing your stories today. One quick thing I'd like yep. to mention, Judy has hired four of our top staff. And so I'm going to thank her for that because, you know, a lot of them have, but yeah. Thank you and, very and, much for coming and, on, and guys. Thank you, Deb. Thank you. I hope better days are ahead for both of you. Deborah Lookamark is the uh, former owner of Culinary Capers Catering. Judy Reeves is the owner of Edge Catering. It's an industry that's really been hit hard during this pandemic. Let's hope the new year brings some better news. All right, welcome back to the show. Do you live in a neighborhood where you're constantly bothered by strong odors? Maybe you've always wondered, what is that distinct smell when I'm driving over the Alex Fraser Bridge? Well, there's now a brand new app designed to help you report strange smells in the city and to find out how it could be impacting your health. Our show contributor, John Jang, joins us now with the details. John. Good morning, Mike. When people talk about Vancouver, we often discuss how beautiful it is visually. It's a destination city, a resort city, so many good things about this. But maybe sometimes we'll talk about the sounds of the city as we're situated by the ocean with our many different beaches. It is vibrant throughout the summer. Very rarely, though, do we ever talk about the smells of Vancouver. And maybe it's time we start doing just that. Now, two local researchers from UBC have developed an app that will help you catalog the many different smells that you might encounter in your neighborhood. That app is called Smell Van. And we are now joined by one of those developers. She is Professor Naomi Zimmerman, an assistant professor and Canada Research Chair in Sustainability with the Faculty of Applied Science in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of British Columbia. Professor... 
I'll be honest, I have never seen anything like this. So what exactly is uh, the purpose, first of all, with SmellVan? Yeah, so we developed SmellVan or Smell Vancouver, sort of the full title, um, to help us understand the relationship between things people might be smelling and their air quality and potentially their health. So, you know, we all have a personal experience with our air quality. I think we've all at some point encountered something that smelled maybe a little bit less than pleasant. Um, we smelled potentially smoky wood-burning smells or chemical smells or agricultural smells. And, you know, they can be really bothersome but we don't actually really know what the impact is on our air quality and our health because odor is typically treated like a nuisance instead of something that can actually be impacting our health. And so here we're trying to essentially crowdsource um, the community's experience of odor in the region to help us plan um, where we can actually do some air quality monitoring and some modeling of air quality. Um, it's really exciting. How much of this was inspired by the wildfire smoke earlier in the summer when uh, the entire region was blanketed by that thick level of smog that originated from the California wildfires, from the Oregon wildfires, and it seemed to have stuck around for a couple of weeks? Yeah, I think Smell Vancouver took a variety of inspirations. So, you know, I I would be remiss if I didn't mention um, an app that was launched in Pittsburgh several years ago called Smell Pittsburgh. Obviously, it had the inspiration for us. and where I, I used to work in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon University. I thought this was such a cool app, um, a real um, easy-to-see, accessible way for the community to get engaged um, in their air quality. And we thought, you know, wouldn't it be great to do something like this um, in Vancouver, except try to expand it a little bit, provide some questions in the app as people can self-report on any health effects they're experiencing. They can also self-report on whether or not they have the financial means to meet their needs. And that can help us get a sort of fuller picture assessment of how odor and air quality and health are all related. So I think, you know, the wildfire smoke certainly because it's very, you know, in your face, these other apps that have existed and also just really amazing conversations with some of the brilliant minds in the region at Metro Vancouver and also at the BC CDC. And from all of that, I think that's where um, Vancouver was born from. So the SmellVan app was developed by you and Amanda Jiang, uh, both researchers at UBC. And as mentioned, this is really the first of its kind, at least that I know about. So let's just be honest here. Based on the results so far, how do we smell? Well, you know, it's really fascinating because we, we only launched the app yesterday. So it's really, it's brand new. And we already have, I think, over 15 or maybe more smell reports uh, on the app. And what is really cool is actually the range of of odors that we're seeing getting mentioned. So things like agricultural smells, things like sewage, things people think might be related to um, fish processing plants, and a huge range of smells. uh, Some comments about smoky smells, some about chemical smells, things that smell like solvents. And so what this really highlights to me is that, you know, given that We've had a fair amount of activity, even, you know, less than 24 or almost exactly 24 hours out from launch. And that there's a huge um, range in the types of smells that are being described and also geographically where those smells are being reported, a lot of variety. It's just exciting to us and and really um, helpful so we can actually get a good sense of, you know, in terms of the air quality perspective, what does this mean for Vancouver? Essentially, through this information, we'll get a really strong sense of, you know, how Vancouver sort of ranks compared to, to other places in terms of these issues. 
you mentioned that the long-term benefit of this study will look into how certain odors are impacting our health. And in that case, I suppose this almost goes hand-in-hand with the many different studies looking at air pollution across our Metro Vancouver region. Now, if you happen to live in a neighborhood that deals with a lot more of that pollution, you have this app where you can track that many different people have reported those smells consistently and therefore showing that there could be a risk to their health. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, an important unanswered question for us is that, you know, often when you experience um, an unpleasant odor, you might have things like headache or nausea, these sorts of things. And we don't know if it's the compounds that are odorous themselves that are causing that or if it's something to do with co-emitted air pollutants that themselves have no odor or if it's because of things like atmospheric reactions of pollutants once they're emitted that then cause them to be odorous and irritating. We don't really have answers to any of those questions. And so having all of this information um, in one study, I think it's going to be really, really helpful um, to sort of answer those questions and hone in on this idea. There you have it. She is Professor Naomi Zimmerman, Assistant Professor and Canada Research Chair in Sustainability with the Faculty of Applied Science in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at UBC, one of the developers of this new Smell Van app. Professor, thank you so much for your time. You are very welcome. All right. Good job with that one, John. Very interesting stuff. The Smell Van app. Yeah, it is live. Check it out. It's very interesting. They got a website too, smell Vancouver. .ca. All right, when we come back, we'll have one of the more interesting debates in the housing industry in Brita- in Vancouver. Should single-family zoning be shut down? That is coming up next. Stick around. Here we go with a great debate when it comes to housing in Vancouver, and that is this. Should we put an end to single-family zoning when it comes to housing? I mean, this used to be the dream, a white picket fence. But does that make sense, especially in a, a region like Metro Vancouver, where housing affordability is such a huge challenge? Well, now an expert panel has just reported out with a on housing supply and affordability in British Columbia. Among the suggestions, the elimination of zoning for single-family homes. Here's Joy McPhail, the former NDP MLA. She was chair of the panel. It can't just be a 500-square-foot high-rise apartment or a 2,000, 3,000 square foot single family dwelling. There has to be more diversity, row housing, six plexes, four story apartment buildings, six story apartment buildings. Okay, let's talk about this now with my guest, Tom Davidoff. He's an associate professor at the Souter School of Business at UBC. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. I know you presented to this panel. What do you think about this idea of eliminating zoning for single-family homes. Does that make sense to you? I think it does, certainly around greater Vancouver. I mean, one rule of thumb would be if by creating more density, allowing, you know, apartment, townhome, tower, what have you, if that raises land values, then there's no reason uh, for more restrictive zoning. The whole point of zoning is you're trying to make the land uh, create as much enjoyment uh, by people as possible. And a really good measure of how much uh, people like the land would be, you know, how much people are willing to pay for it times how many people get to live there. And so, you know, throughout Vancouver, it's obvious that when we upzone, we increase land values. So there's really no good reason to have such restrictive zoning. It's also grotesquely unfair uh, uh, at a social level because you're saying we're going to essentially subsidize uh, the purchase of land 
uh, for people who are rich enough to afford single-family homes by prohibiting anybody else from bidding on that land. So it's a crazy thing for a government to do. You know, usually there's a trade-off. There's economic efficiency. You want to make the economy as strong as possible against uh, equity. You want to help people who aren't so fortunate and aren't able to earn incomes well uh, out, and that's usually a trade-off. But here there's no trade-off. You'd have a stronger economy, uh, more valuable property, uh, and you'd help people who can't afford single-family homes. So, of course, the profit should move in that direction. Okay. I think you make a pretty good argument there. If that's the case, how come this has been such a popular method of public, of urban planning and housing policy for so long? I mean, single-family dwellings have been around for, what, like 100 years? Yeah, at least. Uh, Well, (laughs) single-family homes have a very long uh, history, and it's not a bad thing. Look, if if people can afford a single-family home, good for them. Uh, It doesn't make you a bad person to want a single-family home, and it doesn't make you a bad person to wish your neighbor would live in a single-family home instead of having an apartment next door. People would rather have trees next to them rather than apartments, but it's just a question of the greatest good for the greatest number. And when you've got land, uh, you know, that's worth tens of millions of dollars an acre, you know, zoning that made sense maybe in the suburbs, you know, decades ago just doesn't fit. But as for where it comes from, look, I mean, who dominates local politics? It's uh, Mm -hmm. older uh, homeowners. That's who politicians hear from the most. And, uh, you know, they tend to like the status quo. Now, the, the good news is, uh, by upzoning, you can make those single-family homeowners very rich. Because, of course, if you can sell your home like on the Canby Corridor to multifamily, we've seen people mm-hmm. very happy because their property values go up so much. Right. Okay. That's that's fascinating. Like upzoning is is an interesting kind of term. That's sort of the lingo of of developers. But I, I guess for people who are in the development business, they would like this concept of upzoning because if you can build a fourplex or on, on a piece of property instead of a single-family home, you get more value out of that land, right? Absolutely. Now, if I was in the business of owning rental property, I might have fairly mixed feelings about this because I'd have the opportunity to invest in more housing, but the properties I own would have to compete with many more apartments. Okay. What about resistance to this? Like, If you live now, if you're already in a single-family zoned neighborhood and you like your home, you like the neighborhood that you live in, are you naturally going to be resistant to the idea of densification or changing the rules? I, I, I appreciate what you just said there, that maybe if you're selling your property, you could probably get more money for, for it. If it's upzoned, you could put a, quad, a quadplex on it or something. That's going to make you probably get more money for your, for your property. But if you're determined to live in that home, and this has been your dream to live in a single-family home, and that's where you're living now, uh, you can sort of understand why people would resist it, right? Of course. Absolutely. Again, there is nothing wrong with the human desire to live next to trees instead of people. It's very natural. Uh, So this will take courage on the part of municipal officials, and it'll take so much courage that I think what this report makes clear is there need to be carrots and sticks coming from the province. The carrot is municipal officials get to charge money for this upzoning. They say, sure, you can build apartments, but since the base zoning is single-family, if you want that extra kick to town, home, or apartment, you have to pay us a bunch of money. And, of course, developers are willing to pay lots of money uh, to convert single-family to apartments. So that's one carrot for municipalities is they can raise money for homeless assistance, police, all the stuff that we know it's so challenging to fund uh, these days. So there's that carrot. And then the stick is the province which won't take the direct heat uh, for zoning in a given municipality, just needs to say, look, 
if you're not uh, selling off a bunch of zoning year by year and most of what you're building in your community is single family, then no carrot, and we're just going to come in and rezone, uh, which they have the power to wow. do. So, the, you know, if the province cracks down, you know, think about a well-intentioned city councilor in West Vancouver or the District of North Vancouver. By themselves, you know, they face electoral hell uh, if yeah. they say, well, you know, let's all do the right thing, even though this is 90% single-family homeowners who want to keep the status quo. If they say, hey, look, I'm being as much of a NIMBY as the, uh, you know, not-in-my-backyard politician as the province will let me, that makes life a lot easier for them. So I think a lot of well-intentioned local politicians would love to have some of their freedom curtailed by the province. Okay, okay. I think you summed it up when you said it's going to take political courage to do something like this, because this is a debate and a discussion we've been having for a long time, and a lot. some politicians will come out and support it, but I think most of them want to keep their powder dry on this kind of stuff, and they're, they're too afraid to go there. Like, I remember the previous Liberal government, there was some talk uh, about this, sort of a, an, an approach under the previous Liberals. They didn't go anywhere near it at the end of the day. Uh, does anything give you any encouragement that this new government, we've got an NDP government, majority government now, would move in this direction? Well, uh, we know this government has been willing to take heat from certain single-family homeowners. You'll recall the uh, tax on homes over $3 million, which, of course, justifiably, people who own homes worth over $3 million felt singled out and were very upset. Uh, But the tax stayed in place. And, you know, in the last election, I thought it was remarkable, uh, Wilkinson and the Liberals did not uh, raise that as an issue. Uh, so that's an example where the NDP just won a big re-election, despite having really irritated uh, one class of uh, people who would be affected by this upzoning. So that does give me a bit of confidence. Okay, very interesting. We're going to watch this one real closely. Last question for you. I think this would be most relevant in a city that's got... Uh, a housing affordability challenge and crisis, some might say, like Vancouver, like other parts of Metro Vancouver. What about the rest of the province, though? I mean, like if you're talking about the interior BC, small towns, smaller cities in the province where maybe they don't have those type of affordability pressures, yeah. would a ban on single-family homes make sense there, or could you just apply it okay. in, in really high-priced cities? Oh, well, we need to be really clear. I hope nobody, nobody would say you're not allowed to build a single-family home. The thing that they're saying is municipalities can't ban apartments, right? So if you have zoning that says you can build up to 20 stories, there's lots of places where there just isn't a demand. The cost of building such a tall structure isn't justified by demand. And what the market wants is single family homes. So I don't think any reasonable person would deny municipalities or builders the right to build single family homes. What's at stake is whether politicians can ban uh, developers from building multifamily homes like townhomes or the four or six story apartments uh, Ms. McPhail right. uh, spoke about. And so I, the, the, the good news is in places where single family homing, homes are what the market wants, doing this would have no uh, effect on that. The issue is just in places like Point Grey or Dunbar, where the market would build 10, 20, 50 story buildings, uh, letting them build at least four or six uh, is, is a compromise. Uh, that shouldn't be forbidden by local governments. Okay, I think it's a great discussion to have. Thanks for coming on to talk about it. We're going to follow it closely going forward here. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for covering the issue. You bet. Thank you. Tom Davidoff, he's Associate Professor, Souter School of Business at UBC. 911, what's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion. Oh, my God, the ship is sinking. I can't get out. There's water everywhere. What's going on? 
Agent, stay with me. Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.